We've been examining the various judgments that God will bring upon the earth in the final days of mankind's rebellion. And while many of these judgments take place on the earth, some are also stellar in nature, as we'll learn today. Let's listen as Pastor Phil shares from Revelation chapter 16. Have any of you ever spent time out in the desert in the summertime? Boy, does that sound brutal, isn't it? You know how you thirst? If you don't have water with you, you're in trouble. Okay, unless you can find some water source. Can you imagine this incredible heat coupled with the fact there's no fresh water to drink? How horrible that's going to be for the people of the earth? To be that hot, scorched, and yet not be able to quench your thirst? But isn't that a little preview of hell? Remember the man in Hades? The rich man who lived sumptuously on the earth and cared not for his fellow man, did not believe in God? And Lazarus, a diseased beggar who was placed by his gate every day, hoping to eat some of the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and the rich man gave him nothing. And in the course of time, Lazarus died and was taken by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And in the course of time, the rich man died. And he was taken and put into the other part of Hades, the torment part. And he, lifting up his eyes, right, saw Lazarus afar off, being comforted by Abraham. And he said, Father Abraham, just let Lazarus come over here that he might dip his finger in cool water and touch it to my tongue because I am tormented in this flame. See, that's what hell's like. People reject the living water, and so they're going to thirst forever. And this is a, just a little preview of what's coming. Also, another serious consequence of the sun's intense heat is that it's going to begin to melt the polar ice caps. As the polar ice caps begin to melt, get this in your mind, it's going to cause the oceans to rise 20, 30 feet. Who knows? Maybe more. As the oceans rise, it's going to inundate all the coastal lowlands for miles. Can you imagine all this foul, dead, stinking, noxious, poisonous ocean water now flooding over land, uh, infecting and uh, contaminating and killing people just from the bacteria alone? We're looking at a picture of what's coming that any rational person who reads this and believes the Bible is true ought to run to God as fast as they can. To escape this because this isn't even hell people say hell is right here on earth well this is a little taste of hell on earth this is not hell though i mean this is as bad as this is this can't even compare to hell of course this is going to very much um add to the unspeakable misery all this heat and the melting of the polar ice caps and the rising of the oceans i guess we ought to apologize to al gore he's uh, looks like he's going to be right after all. <laughs> Although, not for the reason he thinks. 
God has a lot to say in his word about using the sun to judge people during this time, by the way. I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus talked about this. He said, talking about this period of time, he said, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon and stars, on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, the earth in cataclysmic upheaval. Turn to Isaiah 24. There's a bunch of these. I'll just give you a few. Isaiah 24, starting in verse 4. Listen to what it says here. The earth, God's talking about judgment. And I believe he's talking about the judgment of the period of time we're, we're, we're studying about right here. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defi defiled under its inhabitants. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. I'll give you one more, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, where God said, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. You think people are getting away with things? Think again, okay? And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Uh, this idea of burning, fire, judgment. I remember reading about D.L. Moody. Uh, D.L. Moody preached uh, a message, and I wanted to go online and just get my facts straight about the dates. But D.L. Moody preached a message. He was an evangelist, of course, and he ministered in Chicago. He preached a very powerful message one evening. And he told his congregation, several thousand, you go home and you think about what I've said. And next week, when you come back here, if you want to receive Christ, I'll pray that you might receive Christ in your heart. But you go home and think about it. Well, that night, the Chicago fire broke out. I think it was October of 1871. And if you know anything about the Chicago Fire, of course, the buildings back then were, were made pretty much of wood. In fact, after the Chicago Fire, because so many buildings burned, they started to uh, use different materials, a lot of more steel and things, to, to make buildings because it was so bad. Everything was on fire. D.L. Moody, before he left the city, had couldn't do any more. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just horrible. It, he said it reminded him of what hell must be be like the crying the shrieking the abject terror the flames everywhere he used that as an illustration of hell for the rest of his life when he preached and he said i will never again send people home without giving them an opportunity to receive christ at that moment because you know what tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us and so he really learned a powerful lesson there but it's interesting it's hard to imagine what this is going to be like at this time. The expression in verse 8, I want to just draw your attention to something, though. The expression, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Verse 8, according to the best manuscripts, that should be translated, and it was given to him, the son, to scorch the men with fire. Definite article. Uh, the definite article seems to point us back to verses 2, 5, and 6 where the people that are in view there, the men, 
are those that have taken the mark of the beast and are worshiping his name. It seems, and of course, this is also connected with verse 9, because in verse 9, it also says, and men were scorched with heat, great heat. There's a definite article in the Greek there also. So the men, and it seems to imply that the only ones being scorched by the heat are the ones who have taken the Antichrist mark and are worshiping his name. Wherever the believers are hiding out, God is supernaturally keeping them nice and cool from the heat. Interesting, isn't it? And maybe even the animals as well. We don't know. Um, now, you would think that something like this would bring men to their knees. I mean, wow. This was, you know, coupled with everything else that's going on, you would think this would break people. But verse 9 is absolutely mind-boggling. And the men, you know, those being scorched who follow the Antichrist, were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Do you see it here? These people know exactly who these judgments are from. There's no confusion. There's no ambiguity. They know exactly what these cataclysms are all about. These are judgments from God. They know it. And they know that God is doing it to break them that they might repent. Now, we know by this time they're not going to. Their hearts are so hard, it's not going to happen. But you would think, after experiencing something like this, that people would be running to God for mercy, but instead they are blaspheming his name, which tells us how there comes a point in a person's life when they have so hardened their heart to God, nothing is going to get through to them. Nothing. There's nothing left to say. All God can do is just wipe them out, take them off this planet. Because there's nothing left to say. They have decided what they want. They have chosen, at this point, the Antichrist and the dragon and so on. They don't want the Lord. And so no amount of punishment is going to purify them or change them. You know, Albert Einstein once observed, he said, it's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. And he was a smart guy for a lot of reasons. I think he had a real finger on human nature well the fifth bowl verse 10 then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain they blasphemed the god of heaven because of their pains and their sores you see it here the sores have not gone away so it's a cumulative it's a cumulative thing right and the kingdom of the beast was full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now, some people believe, many people believe that this darkness is going to be worldwide. All right. And I could see that. Uh, some believe, no, it's only going to be poured out on the kingdom of the beast. Now, his kingdom stretches around the world, but it does not affect every part of the world. There are going to be pockets of resistance. There are going to be peoples and maybe even nations who are not on board with this guy, and they're going to clash with him in, in the battle. Read Daniel 11 this week. You'll see it. And what many believe is that this darkness is going to only affect the kingdom of the beast, his authority, 
All right, those that have submitted to him around the world. But it's interesting as I was was studying this, that apparently this darkness that comes out of nowhere, this is not the first time it's going to happen. Well, we know what happened uh, in Egypt, right? But listen to this. I I found this fascinating. Uh, This is not the first time such a phenomenon has occurred. In the middle of the day on May 19th, 1780, the entire region of New England was covered by darkness a day which has become fixed in New England history as the dark day. The mysterious blackout lasted for several hours. In the early afternoon of March 19, 1886, a similar zone of darkness moved across central Wisconsin, causing the sky to turn from a bright cloud-dappled blue to midnight black in the space of about a minute. This darkness blanketed several villages and towns to the west of Lake Winnebago and lasted about 10 minutes. Similar unexplained occurrences of sudden darkness have occurred in Memphis, Tennessee in December 1904, Louisville, Kentucky, March, uh, March 1911, and other places and times in the United States around the world. All these events have two things in common. One, no one was ever able to explain these events in terms of a known phenomenon such as an eclipse. And two, most of the people who experienced these events were filled with terror, believing the end of the world had come. Well, you can imagine, right? And again, this parallels what's coming in the fifth bowl judgment. Uh, it parallels the plague of darkness that God brought upon Egypt, right? Although that was localized. But it's interesting while the Egyptians were experiencing this very intense darkness, it says in the land of Goshen there was light. The land of Goshen was where the Israelites lived. So again, God can cause darkness to cover certain areas and certain people while he protects others. But Josephus, the Jewish, Jewish historian, tells us that the darkness in Egypt was thick, quote-unquote. It could be felt just like this darkness in verses 10 and 11 causes pain of some kind. It's not ordinary darkness. It seems to have something more to it. I kind of believe it's supernatural in nature, and it's God using spiritual... I'm not saying it's not going to be literally dark. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's not ordinary darkness, right? That God is going to allow men to smother in the spiritual and moral darkness they loved and coveted rather than light. Remember what Jesus said uh, about many who, you know, they, they don't want to come to the light, they hate the light, they love the darkness. And so God is going to allow them to smother in some kind of a thick darkness that is going to be anything like we have ever experienced. And um, whether this darkness is localized or worldwide, um, Again, it nonetheless is a preview of hell itself, which Jesus described as being somewhere in the outer darkness. I mean, it's like these people involved in this judgment are standing on the very shores of the lake of fire. Verse 12, the sixth bowl. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Euphrates River has already appeared in the book of Revelation in connection with the sixth trumpet judgment in chapter 9. At that time, we saw 200 million demons released from some kind of a prison who were bound at or near, it says, 
the Euphrates River. It doesn't say they were in the river. It says we're bound near or at, but very right next to the Euphrates, okay? Um, the Euphrates River is the longest river in the Middle East, and it rightly has earned the title the Great River. The Euphrates River was 1,800, is, I should say, 1,800 miles long and between three and 1,200 yards wide. So the Romans saw it as the dividing line, the wall, if you will, between the west and the east. It became a natural barrier to protect them, the Roman Empire, from attacks from the east. In ancient times, the Garden of, Lo uh, Garden of Eden was located in the vicinity of where the Euphrates and Tigris rivers were. I say were because the flood changed the, the topography of the area so that where the Tigris and Euphrates are today are not exactly where the Garden of Eden was, no doubt, but close, okay, close. If you realize that the Euphrates River forms the eastern boundary of the land that God gave to Israel. I mean, what God gave to Israel, they are only occupying a small fragment. It was supposed to be the Euphrates to the east, the Mediterranean to the west, the Nile to the south, and all the way up into Syria to the north. Now, the Syrians and Iraqis and Iranians wouldn't appreciate, and Egyptians wouldn't appreciate that kind of talk. That's biblical. They never did achieve all of that land. They will during the Millennial Kingdom. But the Euphrates actually formed the eastern boundary of the land that God gave to Israel. And uh, the Euphrates, along with the Tigris, still formed the lifeblood of the Fertile Crescent. Now, the source of the Euphrates and Tigris, by the way, uh, they start at the base of Mount Ararat. And what feeds the Euphrates and Tigris rivers is the snow fields and ice cap high on the slopes of Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet high in modern-day Turkey. And uh, the water is in the spring and summer will melt a lot of it. it it's so high that much of the uh, mountain is always encased in snow and ice. All right? But a good portion melts, runs down the uh, Mount, Mount Ararat, and flows into the Euphrates and Tigris where it runs for 1,800 miles and empties in the Persian Gulf. That's the Euphrates River. If the sun is allowed to scorch the earth, which we see that it will be, that's going to cause the snow and the ice on Mount Ararat to melt, which when it does, that's going to dry up, which means the source of the Euphrates and Tigris is going to dry up, which means those rivers will dry up. But here's something that I thought was very interesting that I hadn't thought about when I first read this. Something else very interesting is going to happen as a result. As the snow and the ice on Mount Ararat melts, it's going to leave, listen, Noah's Ark completely visible and out in the open for the first time since the last time God judged the entire earth. And it's going to be a reminder that God judged the world once for its immorality and idolatry, and he is doing it again, but not with a flood as he promised this time with fire. Turn to 2 Peter 3. We'll end with this. There have been people up on Mount Ararat in some of the hotter summers. They have seen the ark. They have taken pictures of the ark. They have been inside the ark and brought samples of the wood back. 
It's up there, all right? It's up there so high that it's almost always encased in snow and ice. But at this point, it's going to be exposed. And what a visible reminder of how that God judged the world once with a flood, but he has promised not to judge it again with a flood, but this time, the second time, he's going to judge it with fire. Peter tells us that in verse 3. Knowing this, Peter said, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That is the doctrine of uniformitarianism, which is what evolution is built on. And we have many people today, learned, educated people, who scoff at the idea of a divine creator who made it all. Where is the promise of his coming, you know? And Peter said, for this they are willfully, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens of, were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now reserved or preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Peter is telling us that God judged the world once already, worldwide, for its immorality, wickedness. Genesis 6, God saw the thoughts and the imagination of man's hearts were only evil continually. And so he judged the world with a flood. Peter says he will judge it again a second time with fire. And as God begins to scorch the earth and... The mountain, the snow and the ice on Mount Ararat melts and exposes the ark. What a visible, dramatic reminder of what Peter is telling us here. That God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But those who refuse to repent, his mercy and grace will come to an end someday, and his judgment is going to fall. And it's falling right here with these bold judgments. And that brings us to the sixth bowl, which we started last time, starting at verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and this water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. This would, of course, be a reference to probably China, India, Japan, other Asian nations. We have seen in recent years some of these countries rise to uh, to power politically, commercially, and uh, even um, nuclear power. North Korea is now a nuclear power. That's frightening to have a guy like Kim Jong-il, you know, with his finger on the button. Uh, literally, he's a madman, you know. And uh, But we also see nations like China that have gone from relative obscurity in the last uh, few gener last generation, really. Uh, it has become uh, a superpower. Uh, not only commercially, but militarily. In fact, one commentator said, the transformation of China from a backward agrarian economy to superpower status is amazing. We can be virtually certain that these historical changes have been in preparation for the day of judgment that is coming at the end of this age. So the kings of the east, they come, okay, across the Euphrates. Why do they come? Well, commentators differ uh, in, as to why they believe they're coming. Some believe they're coming to wipe out Israel. Some believe that they're coming against the European-based world leader, the Antichrist. 
Not everybody loves this guy. And those that start out loving him don't love him so much towards the end. Those are valid reasons. Uh, maybe they're both right in some way. We do know ultimately, though, why God is bringing them. God is bringing them, as we're going to see in a moment, because he's gathering the nations of the world to the battle of Armageddon. But by God drawing up the Euphrates, listen, this is not an act of kindness toward the kings of the east. It's one of judgment. God is drawing them into a trap. You say, well, why? Well, Henry Morris, in his commentary on Revelation, said, and I quote, There are great nations in the east, like China, Japan, India, many others. These are every bit as anti-Christian as the nations in other parts of the world. For ages, they have been dominated by religions such as Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, and others, which are fundamentally evolutionary religions. That is, they all envision an eternal universe with no concept of a transcendent, omnipotent, personal God who created all things. Their emphasis is solely on present behavior. To them, history consists mostly of interminable cycles without beginning or ending. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for